You're listening to the Straight to Video Podcast with Rob Lane. What is up, everyone? Hope you're doing good and welcome along to the Straight to Video Podcast. Today, it brings me the greatest of pleasure to welcome none other than Chesney Hawks to the show. When it comes to hits of the 1990s, you'd be pushed to find any much bigger than the one and only, which cemented itself to the top of the UK charts for five weeks in early 1991, hot on the heels of the film Buddy's Song starring Chesney, and later to resurface in another film later that year, Doc Hollywood, starring Michael J. Fox. The song has gone on to have a life of its own, being one of the most well-known songs of the decade and beyond. Chesney himself has continued to be a successful singer-songwriter, and this week, in fact, if you're listening when this show goes live, is releasing a career-spanning 5-CD and DVD box set called The Complete Picture and can be picked up from his website, chesneyhawks.com, or through all popular music retailers. Now, I can't begin to tell you what a pleasure it was to chat with Chesney for the show. Super friendly and down to earth, and we talked all about his early journey growing up in a rock and roll family with his dad, a member of 60s superstars, the Tremlos, his childhood in Nashville, his early steps into the music industry, and of course, getting the role in the movie Buddhist Song and that massive hit single. Before we get to our talk, please show some love and support for our friends Dead Skull Coffee or supporters of this podcast and are serving up 15% discount on their ground and full bean coffee. Just simply head on over to deadskullcoffee.co.uk and add the promo code STV on checkout and the money off is yours. And also a continued big thank you to everyone on the Straight to Video Patreon page for the wonderful support. From as little as £2.50 a month, you can bag yourself behind-the-scenes access, a private Facebook group, heads-up on guests, along with a bonus podcast and exclusive merch, all of which can be found over at patreon.com forward slash stvpod, and I really appreciate you checking that out. Okay, let's jump in with a real pop legend and lovely bloke as we get right into my Straight to Video chat with Chesney Hawks. Hello there. How's it going, sir? Not so bad. How are you doing, Rob? Yeah, pretty good, mate. Pretty good. Well, you got a nice little background there, like you got guitars and your posters. All my favourite stuff. I'm in the corner of my parents. uh, I've got a little log cabin back of their garden. It's kind of like my home away from home while I'm uh, while I'm here in the UK and not touring. So that's where you take root once you get back. Absolutely. No, this is like, uh, you know, my little spot. It's got everything I need in it. And I'll show you. It's got obviously all my guitars in there. It's got my beds. It's got a little studio set up. Wow. You, know. you are set. That's it. It's like a little boutique hotel room. Bloody brilliant. Get Deliveroo on the phone. Yeah, mum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just shut out the window. Mum, I'm hungry. And I got some washing while you're at it. <laughs> Super. How is it being back in the UK? Because you've not been long back, right? Yeah, I've been back for about a month now, actually. And yeah, it's great. Fantastic. I'm loving it. It's really nice to actually stand in front of an actual crowd of people. You know, so that part of it is pretty wonderful, actually. The novelty has not worn off. <laughs> no. Well, I'm coming to you from near Nottingham. I noticed there was a live recording of a gig 
from there back in 1991 yes. on your YouTube channel. Yes, at the Nottingham Arena, right? Yeah. Is that where it would be? Yeah, definitely. Back in 91. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, that was recorded for Radio 1. They actually broadcast that. I don't know how I got hold of it, but yeah, I ended up kind of finding it out of somewhere and uh, yeah, stuck it on my YouTube channel. Have you been finding a lot of this kind of stuff? Because you set to release the, let me get this right, it's a career-spanning 112-track box set. Yes. The complete picture. How was the process of putting all that together? There it is right there. Got it in my sticky mitts. I like the kind of tactileness of having like a box, you know? Call me old-fashioned, but I like a physical copy of something. So I know it seems like a lot, 112 tracks, but it could have been 600, to be honest. I was having arguments with the record label. I was like, well, I can't leave that out, surely. I could have made like a 10-CD box set, but, um, you know, well, that's for the next one. Because it's like lots of like old demos and unreleased stuff. Was it like digitizing old cassette tapes or did you have like reels and all that kind of stuff? I did have to digitize quite a lot, actually. But you can't really, you know, master up a cassette. It's just a little too hissy and, you know, but they're worth things funnily enough that were only on cassette and uh i just had to let them go really because i couldn't find them anywhere else the best quality stuff was uh, the old digital audio tapes dats so i had a bunch of those but then i had to hire a dat machine <laughs> because anyone who used to have a dat machine in the 90s they're broken they just broke so they're kind of like uh, rocking horse uh you know what? I still collect VHS tapes and um, it's getting harder to find an old VHS player now because they're all just knackered. Yeah, exactly. And of course, those tapes do deteriorize as well. So, you know, do best to, if you've got anything important on those VHS, to digitize those. Exactly. Have you got any like old concert recordings and stuff on VHS? Or anything? Yeah, in fact, that was one of the things that we found. It was an old video of me, like proper recorded versions of me playing in Germany with the band uh, back in 1991, like stuff that I'd never even seen, you know, with me prancing around like a pop star taking my top off all the time. What was I wearing? <laughs> well, that too, yeah. And what was going on with my hair? Looked a bit like yours, to be honest, Rob. I don't know what's going on with mine at the moment. I'm ready for the haircut. I need to get the wife on board. She cuts my hair for me. Oh, she does? Uh, well, get in line. I'm first in line. <laughs> I want to give people a little insight into your journey because I think for a lot of the public, we see people come out of the gate with a hit single and it's considered instant fame. But your journey in particular has so many elements and kind of unusual events that I think sum up what I've spoken about in the past on my show that luck is actually when preparation meets opportunity Absolutely. a lot of the time. You grew up in a very rock and roll family. Your dad is a member of the 60s band, The Tremlos. When did you realise that your dad didn't have the regular job or lifestyle like <laughs> your mates' dads did? Yeah, well, you know, as you said, very rock and roll upbringing. It was so kind of normal for me that, you know, my dad's mates were all 60s superstars like Jerry Marsden and The Searchers and The Marmalade. And so he used to throw parties where they'd all come and jam in the in the living room and you know my brother and sister and I would sometimes have to step over sleeping in inverted commas musicians in the morning to get to our cornflakes stench of alcohol in there Oh, God, yeah. Not just alcohol either, you know. So, yeah, it, it was definitely my household was the place to be for all my friends because my mum was rock and roll as well. She was a game show hostess and very kind of what we would call fabulous. Big blonde hair and like, you know, she, she was just wonderful. And uh, through that time as a teenage boy, they always used to come to our house. <laughs> 
What's going off at the Hawks' house? Yeah, it's always it was always some craziness going on. Do you remember the first time you saw your dad's band play live? I mean, I can't say I remember the exact time, but I have great memories of very young. Uh, you know, he used to take us sometimes as, as young as like, you know, eight, nine years old. And I have memories of peeping through the, you know, the side of the stage at dad and there'd be girls throwing knickers at him and stuff, you know, and his long dark hair flowing in the wind and leather trousers and shirt undone to the navel, you know. That's when I knew that's what I wanted to do it was the knickers that did it i think rob was your dad cool to you as a young boy because a lot of kids don't see their parents as being cool what he did was cool for me yeah i mean listen my dad is a hero of mine because he's he's such a rock star he really is he's a rock star in every aspect you know he's not just he's a great singer and performer and musician and everything else but he's lived it you know what I mean? He's like, he used to just come in and throw presents at us when he'd come off a tour, you know, and the rock and roll stories of the 60s. I couldn't even tell you, you know, I, I hope that I can get them to write them down, you know, at some point because they're outrageous. They really are. Yeah, I always knew that dad was not the average dad. <laughs> I've not heard it mentioned that often, but is it true your family moved to Nashville for a while when you were five years old? Yeah, yeah. I actually kind of grew up. I had very informative years, actually. I, I moved there when I was five, came back when I was nine. So all three of us had a Southern American accent. You know, my daddy, go sit on that chair. Y'all come back now, you hear? There's all that. I literally, my mum has cassettes of us. We were talking about cassettes earlier on. We have cassettes of us talking when we were kids, and that's how we spoke. So my kind of formative musical years listening to radio and stuff was listening to Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson and Chris Christopherson and Waylon Jennings and you know the outlaws of, of country music in those days because that was all kind of mid to late 70s. Star Wars. Exactly. I saw Star Wars in Nashville. I remember that. I remember it really well. So many huge things happened. In the 70s, yeah, exactly. Incredible. You live out in the US now and commute back and forth to the UK. Is Nashville somewhere you'd like to return with it being such a music hub? It's almost become the new LA for musicians. Yeah, there's been a mass exodus, especially through the pandemic. A lot of friends in the music industry have moved over there. And I have, I still have a lot of friends over there, including my third grade teacher, Miss Ralph. <laughs> So uh, I do get down to Nashville sometimes for songwriting, you know, sessions and things like that. It's been a little while, but my wife is from Indiana, you see. And so we'd go and visit her folks. And sometimes I would just get in a car and drive down to Nashville, which is like a nine hour drive and go and do my writing sessions down there. I love it down there, actually. It's proper four seasons. You get the snow, you get the proper autumns and or as they say, the fall. And it's really warm in the summer. So it's actually, it's a good way of life down there. There's a little bit too much of the Jesus ah going down for me. It's, it's a bit Bible Belt. Too many Trumpers, I'd say. <laughs> How was it returning to the UK then? You say he was nine years old. That must be quite an adjustment getting back into school, especially if you've got the accent. Yeah, I, I think that was quite an adjustment to come back into, you know, wearing a uniform because over there, they just, it's a free for all. It's anarchy, I tell you. And then you come back here and you're like, you, you must have a short back and sides and wear a tie, darling. But I was still very young, nine. My brother was seven. My sister was five when we came back. So young enough to kind of be able to come back and adjust back to the English way of life. You know, and I still have friends. I have one particular friend from before we actually moved. So, you know, I met him when I was like three or four years old. We're still really good mates now. What kind of music was on your radar at that time? Was you being influenced by things that your dad was into or was you finding your own stuff? I do think that I was influenced musically by the country scene over there. I've always loved Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson and my favorites. Absolutely love. And my dad, the reason we went over there is because he made a country album. 
for MCA, which is an amazing album. And, and so that's some of the first kind of real kind of falling in love with music that I can remember. I always thought that once I turned 50, which I have now, at some point after my 50th, I was going to make a country album. So I have that in my kind of back pocket at some point, because I think I got a, had a little old country heart. That would be great, because it'd be like you've got some roots there as well, but you can give it the transatlantic feel as well. You never know. I guess it'd be like London Cowboy. <laughs> when did you decide to learn an instrument for yourself then? Because I think piano came before guitar for you. I did. As soon as I got back to England, that was when I picked up piano. We moved back into the house that my parents bought back in 1969. And my dad had a piano that used to belong to John Lennon in our front room. So that's the piano that I learned on. So I always had an obsession with John Lennon. I think a lot of it is because I felt the spirit of John beneath my fingers. Because I always used to think that because Imagine was the first song I ever learned to play. You know, sitting on John Lennon's piano at nine, ten years old, playing Imagine thinking, wow, he actually played this. That's crazy. How did your dad come about that? Do you know? Yeah, it's quite a funny story, actually. We used to live in a town called Sunningdale in Berkshire. And that is where John Lennon lived in the early 70s in a place called Titmus Park. And if you've ever seen the Imagine video with him and Yoko walking around the grounds and the white piano and everything else, that's Titmus Park. And my dad was working in the studio there sometime around the kind of mid to late 70s. I guess it would have been after we got back, maybe 1979, something like that. This was after John Lennon had sold the place to Ringo. And he came to work at the studio one day and this piano was sitting on the front lawn in the rain. So he said to the engineer, what's the deal with that piano out in the rain? It's going to get ruined. And he said, oh, yeah, that, that was John's, but Ringo doesn't want it, I don't think. So, yeah, he's just put it out there for now. So Dad was like, do you think he would uh, mind if I just, you know, took it off of his hands? And he said, well, I, I guess I can ask. And the next day he came back and he said, did you mention that piano thing to Ringo? He said, yeah, yeah, you can have it if you want. So Dad, he legged it out of the studio fast as he could, found a mate with a transit van, backed it up on the lawn, put the piano in the back, and that was it. Came back and that's the piano I learned to play on. That's insane. Whatever happened to it do you know yeah 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 it was in our front room for years through my childhood and then when my parents moved out of that house which was quite a big house i ended up taking it into my house and i'd had kids at that point and they were learning to play on there and then when i moved to the states i gave it to nick kershaw it's doing the rounds it's sitting in nick's front room now oh i love that i love that was you always writing your own material always 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 yeah even as young as that i remember writing a song about a song called The Mail, which was just basically about letters coming through the <laughs> mailbox, you know, could be a bomb, could be a letter. You never know. It could be news. Things could get better. You know, that kind of what thing. What was you watching on the TV? Oh, mate, I don't know. Well, you know, lots of crazy things like Button Moon. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we all know what was going on. Could you see yourself as a particular artist? Was you looking up to anyone thinking that's the guy I want to be? Well, I mean, at that age, not so much. I was just kind of discovering music. You know, I think by the time I got into my teens, kind of like 13, 14, that's when kind of I started to raid my dad's vinyl collection, fell in love with the Beatles. And that was absolutely the turning point as far as songwriting goes that was completely this is what i want to do you know i fell in love with all beatles songs so obsessed still am it's never ending never ending it just goes on and on and it's still it's just incredible i could talk about the beatles all year and then you know as i got slightly older prince came along and that changed my life as well you know, I always looked up to him and I still think he was the greatest all-round talent this music industry has ever seen. I grew up in the 80s, so like, you know, I was a teenager in the 80s. I loved Nick Kershaw. Human Racing, still one of my favourite albums ever. 
Stevie Wonder, Elvis Costello, you know, I'm a sucker for a good melody. Every decade presents something amazing somewhere. Totally, totally, yeah. So when you were getting set to leave school, is it true your dad gave you a 12-week time frame to try and crack into the business or if not, back to education? Get a proper job, son. <laughs> well, that kind of happened. Like, I really was so determined at that age. I was 15 when I left school and dad was like, what are you going to do? Knowing full well, I was going to say, I want to be a musician. I want to get in the music industry. And being a good dad, he was like, well, listen i'll give you to the end of the summer if you're not earning money son then you're gonna have to think about going back to school it was an incentive really to just get out there so i took it to heart you know i, I went and got piano gigs playing elton john songs and john lennon and mccartney songs in local pubs and like little wine bars and i even did like weddings and bar mitzvahs and things like that i mean that's really young yeah i was very young i used to turn up with my little dog mum would like drop me off with my keyboard you know <laughs> when i got 17 i looked past the test i could do that myself but like i had quite a few regular gigs wells pub in ascot little bar called beethoven's in sunningdale and fox and hounds in englefield green like all these little pubs that i still have people come up to me sometimes my parents still live around a similar area coming out to me say oh, i remember seeing you play when you were like 16 15 down at blah blah pub you know yeah that was it you had a regular on a sunday night i was like yes i remember that how was your stagecraft back then in between songs because that's almost as hard as doing the songs themselves yeah and of course i was very young Fun enough, with the piano, you could just lose yourself and just kind of go from song to song without even having to talk that much. But every night was different. One night it would be that where you're just literally ignored and you're just piano in the corner. And that's where you learn your craft, actually, because you literally you go from one song, which is in one key, and you work out a great seamless way to get into another key. Then you get into an instrumental bit and you end up just jamming it and writing something while you're on the fly. But then there's other nights where the whole crowd will be gathered around asking for requests. And then you really do have to kind of be on your game. I mean, honestly... I equate those days to really where I learned how to talk on stage. I really did. I also had bands at that time. We actually supported the tremolos, you know. My brother was my drummer. In the early days, at like 13, at my first gig at a brownie hut, I had a booklet on top of the piano, which had the songs that we were going to be playing, but it also had little bits of patter. Just stupid things like, are you having a good time? So I'd look down and be like, are you having a good time? Well, if you didn't have them, you'd have just gone blank and like, oh, shit, it's just a bit of a safety net, that kind of thing. is. Oh, totally, totally. And it was very helpful, very helpful. And and now I'm kind of doing that with my 15-year-old son. He's 16 now, actually, but he's an incredible guitar player. I took him on tour. We did 30 gigs together last year. He was, you know, my lead guitar player. He's absolutely amazing. It was his favorite shredder. I'd say Brian May is probably his favorite guitar player. Yeah, because he's also a melody guy. So Brian May, he really is the ultimate as far as like melodic guitar solos. But he loves Prince is his idol. But he also, you know, he gets into the classics like Joe Satriani and Jeff Beck and all these great guitarists. You know, he, he knows more than I do. I mean, I'm not a shredder at all. I'm really more of a company myself on acoustic kind of guy, really. I can play. But Indy's like far surpassed me. He's, he's proper. He's the real deal. Quite a bizarre twist of fate came along when, I think this is nuts, when you had your wisdom teeth out. And whilst in hospital, you saw on TV Roger Daltrey of The Who putting out word for people to come and audition to play his son in a new film he was working on. That was kind of a light bulb moment for you. You saw that as kind of your in, I guess, or an opportunity to grab hold of. Yeah, it was it was funny, really, because, yeah, as you said, I was in hospital and I still had the gauze in my mouth after the operation. I had four wisdom teeth out and I saw him, Roger, in the corner of the room as I kind of opened my eyes in a daze and I couldn't talk. And he was appealing for a young boy that could possibly be his son and that was a musical guy and could sing and play some instruments. And I, I remember looking at my dad going, oh, 
Anyway, so I found myself at an open casting call, kind of like an X Factor audition, you know, with loads of boys outside and everything else. I think we did like five different auditions and I kept getting called back and it got more and more serious. And I was just lucky, really, as you said, timing and everything. It was just perfect. I was the right age to be Roger's son. Now I could play, I could sing, came from a musical background, so I kind of got it a little bit. It was almost mirroring it in a way. It was a bit because my dad kind of managed me in the early days and Buddy's character, his father managed his band as well. There were so many similarities that were weird. Like we filmed on the Slough Trading Estate. My dad grew up on the Slough Trading Estate. Buddy's mother was called Carol. My mother is called Carol. I don't know. It was just like all these odd things that just kind of fitted into place, you know? So it was right time, right place. And you know, I was lucky. You worked alongside some very famous people at the time, obviously Roger Daltrey and Michael Elphick, who was huge back then for Boone, and a lot of upcoming young stars. What was it, do you think, that they saw in you to pretty much cast an unknown for a lead role? I think a lot of it was to do with the musical side, because Roger was insistent that we did all of the songs live, which is no mean feat, because when you're making a film, it's not about just doing it once. You have to do it like 25, 30 times in a row, exactly the same, and have the same vocals and then energy and everything else. And it had only actually been done once before in a film called Coal Miner's Daughter with Sissy Spacek. So we were actually the first English film to record live music as it was being filmed. So I would think there's few and far between kids of that age that were confident enough to be able to do that. You know, I mean, obviously I I had to look the part as well. And the acting side of it, my mum was an actress. I'd never acted before in my life, but I grew up in the entertainment business. So they gave me a couple of lessons and I did some intensive kind of work with some of the actors in the cast. To be quite honest with you, I kind of just played myself, if you know what I mean. The only difference with the character was that his parents were getting divorced. So I had to, you know, acting is just be natural, really. You know, it's like, don't act, be natural. What I did with that side of it was I just imagined that my parents were going to be divorced and that upset me enough to get into that place. But you were given input on the songs as well for the soundtrack too. That's quite unusual. Very, very unusual. But they liked my songs. There was a huge amount of people involved in the project. And I made sure right at the very beginning to let them know that I write songs. You know, I was only 17. I was very precocious, really. And, I, and I'm sending them in the songs that I'd been writing. And, and I got to know the screenplay writer, Nigel Hinton. He wrote all the lyrics. So he was giving lyrics to different songwriters. And I was like, well, give me some. Let me have a go. Let me have a go. You know, I was lucky enough to get three songs on that album. So, yeah, that was very precocious, as you say. Well, if you don't ask, you don't get. <laughs> no, that's it. That's it. And if you see an opportunity like that, and really, to be honest, for me, one of the biggest reasons for going up for that film was the fact that there was a potential record deal at the end of it. You know, it was a musical based film. I knew there was going to be a soundtrack. I was like, that sounds like a good end to the record industry. And there was a Desmond Child song on the film too, right? It was Waiting for the Night that I used to call Wading Through the Shite. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I was never a fan, I have to be honest. I mean, I love Desmond. Desmond's a nice guy. I wasn't sure about that song. I mean, looking back on it now, it's actually quite a good song. I quite like it. But at the time, as a young guy, I just felt like it was just a little bit forced upon me. It felt a little cheesy. You know, it's like, oh, let's go to the guy that writes all the hits. Desmond's a very formula guy, from what I could tell. Very much so. Crack the code. He did, as did Diane Warren. So there's the two code crackers, then Max Martin in the 90s. So lovely guy and everything, but I thought hard against it but the record company were were insistent on it i'm glad we recorded it now because now i can appreciate it as a kind of snapshot in time because it sounds like a 90s song you know i spend my days wading through the shite <laughs> <laughs> Man. 
one of the final songs to be included in the film and on the soundtrack was obviously the huge hit, The One and Only. But again, another element to your story, it was through your dad that the song was brought to the table, right? Yes. We had finished the filming and we were at Abbey Road recording the soundtrack and the record company were very happy with uh, what they had been hearing so far. But they just thought maybe there's another song or two. And the Desmond Child one was one of them that came through amongst many, many others at the time. You know, it was a major record label. It was going to be a, a major motion picture. And so everyone in the music industry was trying to get on that album, which was amazing, you know. But my dad knew Nick Kershaw's publisher and he met up with him and played my dad a couple of songs. What dad thought was a Nick Kershaw album. He's like, oh, is that Chesney's going to be happy. He loves Nick Kershaw. Is that a new album? He said, well, it obviously is Nick. Very recognizable. But the songs are available for anyone because Nick wants to take a little break as an artist at the moment and start to concentrate on writing for other people and producing for other people. So dad brought me the cassette with about 15 songs on it, including the one and only and a bunch of other songs. And I put an asterisk by the one and only and I loved hearing it, you know, because I love Nick. And there's another song called Oxygen that went on to be recorded by Jason Donovan. And then another song called I'm in Love With My TV that Cliff Richard uh, recorded. <laughs> it's so funny. So those are the three that probably on that cassette that got recorded. Anyway, so dad brought it to Abbey Road where the whole team was there. There was the record producers, the film producers. Roger was there, the management company, record company. Too many cooks, right? Dad was like, I've got the song. I mean, to his credit, he always thought that song was a hit. He said, I've got it. I've got it. And so we listened to it, Abbey Road Studio 3, 15 people in the room, and it went down like a lead balloon. Nobody saw it. Was the format different? No, no. It was a very similar kind of demo. It, had, it even had the little... Slightly different to how it eventually became, but it was a Nick production and the record is a Nick production. The guitars were very similar, but of course it was Nick's voice. It still stands up to me listening to that demo. But yeah, nobody saw it. I mean, I was kind of slightly dejected because it was my chance to meet Nick Kershaw. Dad and I left that and uh, my A&R man, Peter Robinson, called dad in the end and said, all right, I think maybe we've got something. Let's get the boys vocal on it. So the next week I got to meet Nick and we recorded it and, you know, the rest is history. Yeah. It's not your usual three and a half minute pop song, though, because Nick Kershaw is responsible for it. It's this finely crafted piece of music. I don't know if you ever crossed paths with him, but I worked with Richie Wermeling from Let Loose for a few years. And he wrote some stuff with Nick Kershaw as well. And he said the stuff he does on songs, you could have like a simple three chord song, but the, the way he constructs his chords and the movements on them and everything, it just takes it to a whole different level. You're obviously a musician and you understand the musicality of, of songs. And if people like the song, they just like the song and they don't, they think it's like a simple pop song. But, you know, it's in four different keys, which is unheard of for a pop song. Especially for a pop song you can hum along to. Yeah, and totally. Sing, and yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, good luck working the chords out. You know, <laughs> it always makes me laugh when people say, I'm going to cover your song. You know, I was like, okay, good luck. You know, <laughs> have fun. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've written with Nick over the years for, like, I've known Nick for 32 years now I guess and he's my main writing partner and I've had songs on his albums he's had songs on mine ever since you know in fact he's got three songs on my latest album which is coming out in the summer and I would say he's my number one musical mentor he's got some fantastic little tricks of the trade that could only be Nick like there's this one thing that he did once with me it's like an exercise where he always writes choruses first it's just a thing and all of his choruses are anthemic, melodic, the stick in your head, you know. And so he did this thing once with me, which I've actually taken onto other sessions and done quite a lot, is you take the chorus and then you write backwards. You figure out how to get into a chorus in a clever way. You see what I mean? So you write a little 
you know, a pre-chorusy thing. So then you've got this interesting thing that goes from pre-chorus to chorus, and then you go back again and find an interesting way to get into the pre-chorus. So you write a verse that comes in. When you do that, you write differently. You just do. We all, you know, strum our three chords or whatever and throw in a B minor or whatever. <laughs> but then they all end up sounding like the same kind of songs. But when you do something a little bit different the way Nick does it, even just silly things like, okay, let's put the solo in another key and then come back to the same key when we get into the chorus. And that's what happens in the one and only. It's just, oh, it's just, I, I love it. And there's so many songs that, of Nick's that I've worked out over the years just because it's like, I love that song. Why do I love that song so much? And I work it out, sit down and work out the chords. I'm like, that's why I love it so much because it's so bloody clever. This shouldn't work, but it does. Throwing the raw book out the window. I would never have done that. I would never have gone there, but it's just genius. You know? And so, and he does it all naturally, you know, plus he's a ridiculous guitar player. Insane. He's, he's so good. The success you had with the song was massive and you're synonymous with that too. You're as big as the song. On that ride, did it help having your brother play drums in your band and also have your dad along with you too? Did that having your little security bubble while ev the madness was going off around it? It kept my feet on the ground and my head well away from the clouds because it helps to have your younger brother call you an idiot when you, you when you get too big for your boots, you know. You got someone in the band who can hit you and get away with it. Yeah, don't be a dick. You know, it's like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, don't believe all that shit. <laughs> so yeah, he he definitely he Jody's my best friend from like, you know, I, I love him to death. And he's still he's still my drummer now, so he's still calling me an idiot. So. <laughs> Brilliant stuff, man. Was there any other acts from that time you'd regularly see on TV shows or gigs that you really hit it off with? I got to know Howard Jones quite well. I wrote started writing songs with him for a bit. He's lovely. But yeah, not not so much. Yeah, I guess early days of take that, got to know those boys. They supported me in those early days and then and Robbie ended up coming and recording a bunch of stuff at my studio. He did the Millennium demos at my studio and wrote all those while I was sitting there with, with him, really. And not only did you get to collaborate with one of the 80s greatest pop songwriters in Nick Kershaw, but also got to work with Adam Schlesinger of Fountains of Wayne on your song Stay Away Baby Jane. Obviously, the late Adam Schlesinger, we lost quite recently. How was that for you? Was you a fan of Fountains of Wayne? Totally. Massive fan. That's why I wanted to work with him. This was mid to late 90s. I was in New York. I'd seen Fountains of Wayne live. Fell in love with Radiation Vibe, which is an early, early song. That's the first song I heard by them hearing coming over a PA speaker. I was like, what the hell is this chorus? I know. Oh, it's so good. That's one thing that Adam was insanely good at, was like catchy choruses. I actually introduced Fountains of Wayne to Nick. He loved them. Adam became a friend. You know, we wrote a few songs together. Stay Away Baby Jane was uh, ended up being a single of mine. And we wrote another song called When She Gets High. We did a great demo of it, but never released it or anything. But I wanted to put it on the box set. But I, I, as I said before, it could have been a 600 track box set. I had to kind of kill my darlings, you know. And then I ended up, I played with Fountains Away. And actually, you know who Harry Shearer is? Harry Shearer, for your listeners, is the voice behind most of the Simpsons. And probably more importantly for a certain generation is Derek Small the bass player from Spinal Tap absolute comedy legend and I joined his band for a few gigs and then we did the Conan O'Brien show with Fountains of Wayne backing us it was a horrible song it was called Celebrity Booze Endorser and it was just me on the acoustic guitar and singing in the corner with Fountains of Wayne and Harry Shearer what a moment <laughs> You couldn't write that collaboration. You couldn't. And that was actually the last time I saw Adam. And I was really, really, really saddened to hear about his passing because, you know, he was only 52, for goodness sake. And uh, what a talent, you know, Oscar nominated songwriter. Everything he put his mind to, he brought class to it. Amazing, just naturally talented musical mind. Yeah, brilliant. 
God rest his soul. You said that after all this time, you've given up ownership of the song, the one and only. It now belongs to the people and the fans because it's attached so many memories for them to it and all this kind of thing. Miles Hunt of the band The Wonder Stuff, he spoke of a similar thing on a recent project of his. He says he's just, he describes it, he's just the custodian of the songs now. That's great. I might nick that. Yeah. <laughs> he's just responsible for looking after them and performing them, but they're no longer his. I think that's quite a powerful way of looking at the impact of music. I think after a certain amount of time when a song has had, like a song like The Wonder Stuff's catalogue, you know, it's had time to, you know, marinate. The size of a cow is it's a song with wings. It just keeps going, you know, and it gets kind of handed down like a mantle. The One and Only is definitely one of those songs. You know, for the first 10 years after The One and Only, I didn't play it. I refused. I was like into Radiohead and turning up to 11 and shoegazing and, you know, I didn't do anything with it. But then turn of the of the century, I got a couple of gigs to go out as me, which I hadn't been out as Chesney Hawks, that name, or as my friends call him, him. And I was so nervous because I just thought, well, it's been 10 years and these kids were like nine years old when it first came out and they're never going to remember me, you know. And then when I eventually went on stage, it was just crazy and they really did know it and it had been handed down and it become like a student anthem over those years. You know, it had its own path and it went out there and it made connections with different people that I don't know. I have nothing to do with that. You know, people have connections to it because it was the first dance at their friend's wedding or playing in the club when they met their wife. All these amazing stories that have nothing to do with us artists. So I like that. I'm just the custodian. Take it. Take it and roll with that. <laughs> yeah. So if I ever see Miles, I'd be like, I nicked your phrase there. I nicked it. <laughs> Sorry about that. Now you seem Prime to be as busy as ever. The new box set, I believe you mentioned you have an, another new album all set to go. You're working on a musical, you have a podcast, a bunch of live shows. Is this possibly the busiest you've been for a long, long time? I think it probably is. There's more as well. I, I'm, I've taken over the reins of the tremolos so because my dad hasn't been well. I took over a tour last year, at the end of last year, and I'm doing the tour again, a 60s gold tour in October, November this year. So yeah, it's pretty crazy. And there's you know, loads of gig sheets filling up like crazy. I just seem to be really, really busy right now, which which is great. I'm glad I'm I'm still able to do this. Are you feeling energy wise? Are you ready to go? Or are you like <laughs> <laughs> Well, funnily enough, yesterday I was saying to you before we went on air, is yesterday I had like 15 interviews in a row sitting here and by the end of it i was like i need a bloody drink you know <laughs> so today i think you're, you're one of two interviews so you've got the energetic chesney today that's good i'll take it i'll take it but mate thank you ever so much for chatting with us um i've loved hooking up and hearing about your journey there's so much more i could just dive and go into we'll do it another time keep them for another one we'll do a part two at some point yeah exactly <laughs> we'll do that thank you so much rob take care mate Massive thank you to Chesney Hawks for sharing some time with me here on the Straight to Video podcast. What a top bloke and it made my day to talk with him and hear all his great stories. The huge 5 CD and DVD box set The Complete Picture can be found at chesneyhawks.com along with all his upcoming projects and live dates. So be sure to check that out as there's so much going off in his world right now and if you want to catch up on over 160 episodes of this show... They can all be found at stvpod.com or just jump back in every Tuesday and Friday when a new episode lands. That is all for today's show. I hope you had a great time.
time and I appreciate you listening. So until we chat again, take care of yourselves and speak real soon. <laughs> <laughs>